Whether it is true, I know not. Of a French farmer, typical blue garb, red handkerchief tied about around his neck, alpino hat, and driving one of these de chevaux cars. You know, the little car that sits so high on its springs with the narrow wheels, suitable for carrying a sack of potatoes or a pig in the back across the French countryside tracks. And this farmer would drive from his village, and where it was I never heard, to work his fields. And at the end of the afternoon he would drive back past the church. And there he would stop and get out, enter the church, take off his hat, and sit down opposite an image of the Lord Jesus. Whether it was a sculpture of the Lord Jesus at the cross or a picture of him staring serenely ahead, I could not say. And at some point in time, the local priest, pottering around in his church, noticed this. And one day he went up to the farmer and he asked him, My son, what is it that brings you here every day? Can I help you? Do you want me to say a mass for something? Light a candle for you? Take your confession? Or pray with you? But the farmer answered him, Thank you, Father, but no, I don't need any of that. I come in, I sit opposite my Lord, he looks at me, and I look at him, and that is enough. He looks at me, I look towards him, and that is enough. Now, you might right now be saying to yourselves, that is not very Presbyterian. No images of the Lord in our church. Or you might say to yourself, that is not a very articulate faith. That is a rather rudimentary form of theology. And as Presbyterians, you would be right, of course. But nevertheless, I would like to ask you to hold that thought in your mind. Jesus look at, looks at me, I look towards him, and that's enough. Hold that thought and keep it in your mind, for we meet this thought also in our text. And our text this evening is a drama in three acts. There is first the warning that the shepherd would be struck and that all would flee away and that Peter would deny his master. But also already with the promise of resurrection and reunion. That is what we read in Matthew 26. And then the second act is the confirmation of the first, that is the capture of the Lord Jesus, the flight of them all, the unfolding of the sham trial, and the harrowing story of Peter's denial 
in Luke 22. And then there is the final act. After the promised resurrection, there is also the promised reunion in Galilee and Peter's reinstatement and his instruction in John 21. And I would like to summarize the message of God's word for you tonight as follows. Jesus looks at Peter and he sees the sinner. Peter looks towards Jesus and he sees his Savior. And that was enough. You follow me. Jesus looks at Peter as we as Jesus looks at Peter, as the Lord Jesus looks at us, and he sees a sinner. But Peter and we look at the Lord Jesus, and we see our Savior. And that was for him, and it is for us enough. You, we, follow him. Or, if you prefer a more doctrinal approach, we might follow the Heidelberg Catechism, which in its first two questions asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then there is the second question. What is it that you must know to live and die in this, in the joy of this comfort? And the answer is there are three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. That is guilt. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and my misery, that is grace. And third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance, and that is gratitude. And also in our text we find these three elements, guilt, grace, and gratitude, as the key elements for our life in faith. So first then, Jesus looks at Peter, and he sees a sinner. He sees guilt. And this takes up the first two of our readings. In Matthew 26, the scene is set. And we find ourselves here just after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, during which the betrayal by Judas and the Lord's, Lord's death had been foresaid. But that message apparently has not sunk in because the disciples are still stuck in their Judaistic messianic expectations of a worldly savior who would free the Jewish people from their oppressors. 
And therefore the Lord in our text now warns them again for what is to come. And it is worthwhile noting a few things. There are three predictions in our text. The first, the shepherd, the Lord Jesus, will be struck. And the quotation from Zechariah tells us also that it will be God who will do this. Not the ones who maybe thought that they were in charge, the ecclesiastical establishment or Pilate as the worldly, worldly establishment, but God, in accordance with his plan that he had set out through Zechariah, would strike the shepherd. And that must have been a shocking message for them. And then the next one is even more shocking. All his followers, his friends and his supporters, they will flee. They will distance themselves from him. The verb used, skandalizomai, literally means to trip over. But metaphorically it means to take offense or to be scandalized by. Nobody would make any contribution to the Lord's work, for they had all fled. The Lord, lonely and left alone, would suffer through the sham trials of the Sanhedrin and Pilate, and he would be alone in the cry of their election at the cross. And after this first warning, there is then a second one, but this one is an encouraging one. The Lord will rise again and they will reunite in Galilee. And so his death and their scattering will not be the end. And the gathering that we read about in John 21 is already predicted here, even though the disciples did not understand this till later. And then we hear Peter speak up. Was he committed? Was he bold? Was he impetuous? Was he rash? In any case, he ignores what the Lord was saying. And his statements are dominated by the I. I will never. I will never take offense. I will never deny. And after this first statement, the Lord gives his third prediction in his warning to Peter. Truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Truly. For sure, mark my words, my prediction is an absolute certainty. Before the cock crows. There is a lot of debate about how many times and at what times the cock was supposed to crow. But the point simply is, before the night is out, within a few hours after making these strong statements, you will have reversed yourselves completely and will have betrayed me. And then deny me. Up arneomai. It is a stronger version of the verb. Deny me away. And it will be three times. It will not be an aberration. It will not be a slip of the tongue. But it will, its repetition, be very clear and explicit. So the Lord looks here at Peter and in his most eager, bold and fervent disciple... He sees a sinner, a sinner who did not listen, who does not listen, and in the future will sin again, notwithstanding all his protestations, most grievously by betraying him. And yet, 
the Lord does warn him against that betrayal, but also here he already predicted beyond the betrayal their reunion in Galilee. So he also looked at Peter in love. The Lord looked at this sinner in love. And then, just a few hours later, in Luke 22, we move into the second act of this drama. In the intervening time, the servants of the Sanhedrin have come with their clubs and their stakes under the cover of darkness. In the Second World War, the Nazis often took suspected resistant fighters away from their homes in the darkness of the night and in the thickness of the fog for them to disappear and never be seen again. And so here the ecclesiastical establishment took Jesus, who had been with them all the time, all day long in the temple, at night to their sham trial. The trial itself also at night, where they were supposed to be conducted in public and in daylight. And what a disappointment the disciples must have brought to Jesus, like we often may do. The warning against their overconfidence had not been heeded, and the exhortation to pray against desertion had not been complied with. They had slept, and the promise to stand by him had not been honored. All the disciples have fled And Peter follows only at a safe distance. He wants to know what is happening, but also to stay incognito. And then there is the well-known escalating story of the betrayal. First there is the passing comment of a small servant girl, and then the first denial. And then there is the more persistent accusation where the girl is now joined by a man, And finally, the accusation by several people, supported by an argument. Your accent gives you away, man. And they are followed by ever more vehement denials by Peter. And immediately after Peter speaks, there is through the silence of the night the sound of the cock. From a neighboring shed or yard, from somewhere out, of the dark comes the voice crying the time but also the voice decrying the betrayal and then there is verse 61 the Lord Jesus turned and he looked straight at Peter it wasn't a passing glance it was not an accidental casual meeting of the eyes No, the Lord turned, and the verb used is enblepo. He looked into Peter, into his eyes, with steadfastness and attention. Now, was that a look of knowing? He knew that he had been betrayed. Or a look of sadness? He knew that he had been let down and left alone. A look of reminding? See, I told you. Or a look of accusing, notwithstanding your promise, you did betray me. Or a look of compassion, 
Peter, I did warn you. Or a look of promise. And listen now then also to the other things I said. Well, our text doesn't say so. Oh, you are welcome to understand it in your situation as addressing your needs. Because when we sin, the Lord looks at us and he sees a sinner. A sinner who he, at that very moment, was suffering for then and now has suffered for at the cross. And in that endless love is how he looks at us. So when the Lord Jesus looked at Peter, he saw a sinner. The overconfidence had now been joined by betrayal. The guilt could have not been more clear. And it was also devastatingly clear to Peter. He went out and wept bitterly. And now the sin also had been joined by regret and repentance. As we at times may bitterly regret something we said or did. For this is an experience we also may have at times in our life. Guilt, regret, 